0: What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling
1: Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades.
2: Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week, we bring you a Worst of March duel, as I'll be representing the worst of March 1983 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, with the 90s and all that is bad and a bag of chips, say hello to Man Crush.
3: What's up? It's Man Crush. I have March of 1994 and the incredibly average March of 94. I don't like worst of, is going to be hard to come by.
2: Also joining us on the panel and bringing the spirit of 76, welcome back to the show, the media king of the North, Joe Finley.
1: That is the nicest thing I've ever been called. (laughs) I've got March of 1976, and it is clearly the worst one because I wasn't there. I was there for the 80s and the 90s.
2: And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. And continuing our recent series of repeat judges on the show, he's our favorite cancer merchant. And yours too, all rise for actor, author, composer, and now two time judge, Scott Schiaffo. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Great to be back, boys. Thank you for coming. Oh, you got it.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers, to review the show, listen, subscribe, and play along at home, it's time for more in Decades. Yeah. Let's go right down to our guest judge, Scott Schiaffo, for the coin toss. This week, it'll be between myself and Joe Finley. You know what, Joe? You have the honors to call it this week.
1: All right. Well, if we're going for the worst, we're going for the back end, so I'm calling tails.
0: Oh. Okay, boys, here we go. It's probably going to be loud. Oh,
3: I think you broke some.
2: Oh,
0: it's heads.
2: Oh. All right, that means I win the coin toss, and I have control of the board, and I get to select our very first category. You know what, gentlemen? Let's go over to the television round to start things off tonight. Uh, my television selection was originally going to be a major movie release with Ryan O'Neal starring in it and the director of Secret of My Success, Herbert Ross directing, but he quit the project and they decided to make it a TV miniseries instead. It aired over four nights, March 27th through the 30th of 1983. And it's a show that all of our moms watched and they loved it. And for the life of us, we still cannot figure out why. The winner of four Golden Globes and another 11 other awards, I give you the story of a Catholic priest in the Australian outback during the 1920s and the beautiful granddaughter of a vast sheep station owner, as they stand powerless before God's will, tormented by desire. How far are they willing to go in the name of love in the Thorn Birds?
0: Oh, man. God. I'm I'm so brain dead. I knew I knew it, and I just. Did you say a sheep station? (laughs) What the fuck is that?
2: (laughs) I actually had to look up what a sheep station was. It's basically like a sheep herder. You own like a big field where you keep all the sheep.
1: It's like a gas station in the <laughs> 1800s. I cut the 920 sheep to Glasgow. <laughs>
2: so this show is so long and boring. Newspapers across the country <laughs> printed a cut-out character and plot guideline for you to follow along over the four nights. Richard Chamberlain stars in this ten-hour miniseries about a priest who just wants to tap that ass. I give you the Thornbirds on ABC.
3: Oh man! Oh, it sounds amazing. You know what? That's what I love about the worst of episodes. I, I like. I've heard the name. I've never knew what it was about, and it just comes out out of normal. Now I know what a sheep station is. And I'm going to use that
2: all the time. All right, Joe Finley. Over to you. What did you bring for the television round?
1: Well, I don't know if I can match up to a sheep station. There are no sheep stations in my show. Uh, but this one's a crazy one because it was developed by Norman Lear. And in this time, especially in the 70s, it's hard to say Norman Lear and Worst in the same category. But this time you had no choice. It's based on a Saturday morning comic strip. And it was starring James Coco, uh, maybe best known as uh, as Alyssa Milano's grandfather and Who's the Boss? And Geraldine Brooks, uh, the show was just about an overweight couple who loved each other very much and were very overweight together. They owned a deli station in, so that's deli station, sheep station, uh, in the, in the lobby of an office building. And the show was really just about these two fat people loving each other and it was filled with fat jokes. And it led to the following review. The time may have arrived for the Norman Lear factory to close down and take a serious stock of its product. And they called this a hastily concocted product, which aired NBC Wednesdays at 930. Uh, It was filled with all the usual tropes of the wacky neighbors and all this stuff and all that sort of thing. But it was mainly just centered around a couple of fat people being fat. And that was Norman Lear's baby. And that's what I give you is the dumplings the 1976 version of mike and molly it was called the Duncan. Dump- it really was actually what was funny was when i was researching it the first thing was like people who searched this also searched mike and molly and i was like oh
0: See, that's, that's just it's 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 so incorrect too like you know with the political incorrectness to call it that You never get away with that now? That's (laughs) fat shaming. It's fat shaming.
3: No, 1976, they didn't give a shit.
2: (laughs) All right, man, Crush, what did you bring for the television round?
3: All right, so let's go March 14th, 1994. So one of the producers or former producers of the TV hit series, Roseanne, Bruce Helford, he decided that sitcoms were featuring kids that just weren't representative of kids in the 90s. So he felt that all the kids were stuck in this, like, leave it to beaver era, you know, I, which I don't really get when you think about it, when you think about the shows are on the nineties, when you fresh Prince, blossom and all that, because this is an NBC show, but he thought that all these TV stereotypes for kids were growing stale. So apparently he went to a bunch of schools in the St. Louis area and he did some research on what kids were really like. And, uh, after allegedly, interviewing 306th graders. He felt like that he had enough ammunition to put together this new sitcom called someone like me. And it's a show that will give a real depiction of kids in the nineties. And like Joe did, you know, people, and we do this a lot where people bring bad reviews. I did the opposite on a worst of episode. And I brought a good review of this show from the Arizona daily star. And it says someone like me can fill a void at NBC and be a huge hit it says the uh, the cosby kids are long gone blossom has outgrown her girlishness and although the seasons of the good life and the mommies introduced a few new kids to the nbc schedule it's a it's largely a network without a primetime juvenile headliner i love how they didn't mention fresh prince of bel-air at all <laughs> i mean he's not juvenile but ashley is mm-hmm. um and it goes on to say uh, that makes it an open field for Gabby Hoffman, star of Someone Like Me, premiering at 830 on Channel 4. The 12-year-old Hoffman plays 11-year-old girl Gabby Stepjack, the daughter of a middle-class St. Louis baby boomers Jen and Steven Stepjack, which is played by uh, Patricia Heaton and uh, Anthony Tyler Quinn. And it just goes on and on, just sucking the teat of this show. Uh, well, when it was all said and done, someone like me, it aired only five episodes and hasn't been heard from again since April 25th of 1994. Uh, like I said before, it starred, uh, Patricia Heaton, of course, of everyone loves Raymond's fame. And, uh, Drew Carey was one of the writers on this. Other than that, it's horrible. Uh, I watched the first episode and it was bad. I tried to watch the second episode and I couldn't make it through. Uh, worst of all, the show it took, and this is why I picked it, it took Blossom's Monday night time slot and moved her to Saturdays. Wow. Wow, that must have been the death toll. Yeah, it really was because it, it moved her for six weeks. And if you think about it, like, there's no internet in 1994. Yeah, I'm sure they put ads up on, this, on you know, NBC. But if you didn't see that, you would think that Blossom was just gone for six weeks because it, then in May, after they canceled this show, They brought Blossom back two Monday nights at 8.30. And then, of course, Blossom only lasted one more year. Their uh, fifth season, they went into complete. It was a dive, and it didn't even hit a 10 on the share, and then it got canceled after that. I don't know if that had anything to do with someone like me and this whole time replacement, but that's, again, NBC. Bad idea. Mid-season replacement. Let's uh, let's move Blossom, (laughs) a show about a girl, about a kid in the 90s, which is fairly accurate and put on another show about kids in the 90s like what It's stupid <laughs> i remember when NBC. they were
0: when they were struggling for air meeting to keep the show alive i remember you know tonight on a very special blossom you're know, like that well, was a <laughs> little hook it get dark yeah yeah or what do you know tonight on a very special blossom they deal with blah 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 well, that's what was good about that show, though, because it, it
3: went back and forth. It was a sitcom, but it did deal with some serious stuff, as did Fresh Prince. So for NBC to say that they didn't have a show that really depicted a kid in the 90s, it's just yeah. kind of puzzling. Yeah, way.
0: you know, I and you know, you had a lot of other networks popping up at that time too, like Fox. At that time, Fox became a contender. And then in the early oh, to sure. mid to late 90s, Fox was right up there with the. Uh, the major networks in a lot of ways with their series, you know?
3: So, yeah. So someone like me, that's what I got for my pick. I'm sure everybody forgot it by now.
0: I don't remember (laughs) it at all. And I should, you know, I, but then again, my radar was not up at that time for a lot of television overall. And a lot of those years I wasn't watching TV. The TV was watching me (laughs) in terms of, I was probably either so blasted on something that, uh, I, you know, TV was washing over me, and uh, I liked Wings. I loved Wings Oh, yeah, back then. great show. But uh, my head was really into film. But now, uh, wow. I, th- I mean, I know what I'm going with. I don't know if we want to bat it around or just get right to it. I know <laughs> what I'm picking. Where are you going? I mean, I, for me, this is a tough round because
3: the other two I've never saw, and clearly Joe's could never happen in 2021. Yeah. So, it's going to be tough for you, which is weird cuz there's so really.
1: many more fat people. <laughs> <laughs>
2: true. Are they holding <laughs> auditions?
1: This is
0: my audition right here.
1: <laughs> so you, you guys are videotaping this, right?
0: <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I I know where I'm going. It's I guess it's obvious, especially me being I can't help it. I'm uh I try to I do try to be sensitive, politically incorrect yet not lose a sense of humor because that's something that's really a hard line to walk. But, you know, and I fought the battle of the bulge as a child and into my teens and it was no joke. So I love that Mike and Molly can deal with it, but not name the show something like, you know, <laughs> the chubsters or whatever the hell. <laughs> you know, so I got to, you know, and then shame on North, That's pushing it too far. I think, you know, yeah. And, so, I would go with that. Thornbirds, I know, was really embraced by uh, a certain age group, probably, but I don't know. That, that was based on something quite literate that was very successful, I think. Yeah, so, it was
2: based on the book,
0: yeah, you know. So, and the other thing I never got a chance to see at all, all five weeks it was on TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best part
3: about that show was when I was trying to find reviews for it. And this is kind of like a telltale sign too. their production wasn't even done yet. So they didn't send anybody any re- advanced reviews, copies of this. So nobody even got to review it that first week. So it was kind of just like, oh, this sounds great. And then like a week later, I found other ones who were like, yeah, this, this is so this is shit.
0: <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> stinking up the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, Joe,
2: you won that round. You pick up a point and you take control of the board. Where are we going next?
1: All right. Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to get my quote fingers up for this one. We're going to go for hot products. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So I was reading the Detroit Free Press, and maybe this is a sign of the times. Maybe this is a sign of the place, but it was just a very weird ad that I've never seen before. It just kind of blew my mind, and I'm like, stop everything. I'm stopping looking now. This, This is it for me. The ad says, protect yourself, your family, your property, the world's finest trained dogs. That's right, the K9 Command Dog, Attack Dogs for Sale in Detroit. <laughs> wow. Oh my god. <laughs> they were selling Doberman Pinchers, uh, German Shepherds. Uh they would also provide dog training for your dog if you already had a dog but it didn't know how to kill on command. Uh so you could call them up and Basically, turn your pet into a weapon. So that's my that's mine for it was in March first issue of the Detroit Free Press, was the canine command dog. That's a first.
0: <laughs> then they immediately flipped the dogs to fight each other, and then they did that in the backyard. Yeah, yeah, Jeez. which it's horrific! Oh my! I'll gosh. send
1: you guys the clipping for when you post it. It's hilarious. Uh, you know,
0: I I I wrote and released a book called "Vicious Dogs Attack Me." in sleepless nights yeah. in summer so i know a thing or two about vicious dogs although they're metaphorical dogs but oh that's crazy
2: <laughs> all right guys my hot product is a copy of time magazine published march 21st 1983 and it features chrysler's lee Coca on the cover and why is that a worst of hot product you may ask well for the answer, we're going to go over to the Billings Gazette out of Billings, Montana, March 27th, 1983, where the Associated Press writes, Time typo helps boost sales. About 200 newsstand copies of the March 21st issue of Time magazine may turn out to be a collector's item because of what the magazine's publicity manager calls a human error. Despite its large proofreading staff, the magazine printed about 200,000 copies of a cover that has a typographical error on it. 40,000 copies were destroyed, and a new cover created at a cost of more than $100,000. The error contained is in the fold-down flap in the top right-hand corner of the magazine cover. It reads, A new plan of arms for control, leaving out the R in control. The typo may have urged sales, though, the article was noting that one man bought up the remaining two copies of the issue at the drugstore and said he couldn't find any other copies at any other stores. The man who declined to give his name said that he hopes most of the blooper issues that other people bought, they just read them and throw them away, making them more valuable for him to sell later on as a collector's issue. If you happen to be interested in picking one of these up, you can go on eBay right now and pick it up for 500 bucks.
3: Whoa, damn. Yeah. It's a lot better than the uh the Billy Ripkin fuck face card <laughs> that only goes for like six dollars Yeah, so
2: the and to date this is the only era ever on the cover of Time magazine. They left damn. out the R and control.
0: So the product is the magazine, not that thought the Lee Iacoko thing or whatever that was, right?
2: Well Lee is on the cover of the right. magazine.
0: So I'm thinking I don't think that had anything to do with DeLorean, did it?
2: No no all right man crush what do you have
3: all right so let's go march 20th 1994 we're going to talk about pay-per-view for a minute uh maybe this is the same thing no we talked about phones or long distance or 900 numbers the last time
0: yeah 1-800 hot date
3: (laughs) (laughs) this one's pay-per-view
0: all my residual money went to 1-800 hot date well, let's see if
3: it went to pay-per-view as well cuz I I vividly remember like most kids probably remember as well begging our parents for whichever like wrestling pay-per-view is coming up and unlike these days where there's a fucking pay-per-view every damn month back in the late 80s and 90s they were spaced out well the buildup for certain events was that of legend back then. So, now I didn't get all the pay-per-views but there was one particular event that my friends and I would get together Every year to watch every March or April, one of my friends or myself. And by that, I mean, of course, my parents or their parents, or we'd use the black box, of course, would purchase uh, WWF's annual wrestling extravaganza, WrestleMania, uh, starting with WrestleMania three. We started at my friend Brent's house and that tradition went all the way up to this show. And that is until 1994. I mean, by this point, we're in 10th grade. And the WWF was starting to lose its luster a little bit. And when you look at... I mean, you can just look at the pay-per-view buys from WrestleMania. WWF, they still did pretty well this year. They did 420,000 buys. However, this was actually down from 430,000 buys the year prior. And the years following was dark territory. 1995 dropped to 390,000. 96, it dropped to 290,000. And 97 dropped to 237,000. So you can say that this is like the beginning of that dark era in the WWF. I mean, just by comparison, if you look at uh, the first year that the Attitude Era really blew up in 1998, that WrestleMania did 730,000 buys. So, I mean, almost doub- more than doubled, tripled, quadrupled almost uh, from uh, 97 to uh, 98. Uh, but, I mean, you look at the span of four years in the mid-90s, vince was probably like losing his mind at this point but for you guys that are uh, scoring this one at home this was wrestlemania 10 and which by all means this is the 10th anniversary of wrestlemania it should have been the biggest event on earth you would think and out of the 10 matches on this card there's only two great matches and the rest are like pretty terrible in my opinion of course the event kicks off you had owen hart versus bret hart which is fantastic it's a 20-minute epic. Owen takes that one. And, of course, the other match he had is WWF's second time ever doing a ladder match. And you get uh, Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. It's completely epic. But if you look at the rest of this card, it's just super lame, the entire thing. And <laughs> another reason, I'll, I'll go through the card real quick, but um, this is Randy Savage's final WWF match. And it's against Crush. In a false count, anyway. I remember match, that. Right? I re- it's just <laughs> terrible. I mean, that's, and then of course he went back to commentating and he didn't even make it to the end of the year and then he was gone, went to WCW. But I mean, to see him go out like that, and that's his last match in WWF, and I grew up, he was one of my favorite wrestlers, and to see that, it was just completely shitty. But look at this card, real quick. You had, uh, besides that first match, and you had Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna Vacon against Doink the Clown and Dink the Clown in a mixed <laughs> tag.
2: Luna Vachon. Yeah. You'll get hammered for that one. I was trying really
1: hard not to say anything. <laughs> She's still terrible.
3: Uh, you had, uh, of course, like I said before, Randy Savage defeated Crush. That was a uh, best f- two out of three falls, I believe. Um, Alondra Blaze against Liliani Kai. Women's WWF championship match. Boring. Uh, Men on a Mission. Remember them? Uh, yeah. Mo- Mabel and Mo- Mabel. uh Against the Quebecers, which uh, Joe is a big fan of. And then you had... Uh, Yokozuna defeating Lex Luger in the boringest match ever, which ended in disqualification for the title. <laughs> then you had Earthquake defeating Adam Bomb in 35 seconds, which is the eighth match in this card, 35-second <laughs> match. Then you had, uh, of course, the latter match was ninth. And then uh, Bret Hart comes back to beat Yokozuna. <laughs> so you got a double helping of Bret and Yokozuna, just what everybody wanted. Uh, but of course, Brett walks away with the title, but I don't I don't think it saved WWF at that point, And they did it way too late. So I know some people, you know, they they think this is a decent one. In my opinion, it's not. I mean, it's two good matches on a WrestleMania card. I don't know. What do you think, Mark?
2: Uh, a lot of people consider this one of the better WrestleManias. Uh, but yeah, kind I see of that a lot. With, I'm kind of with you. Yeah. I think it's got some of the better WrestleMania matches on it. But as an overall, no, not even close.
3: One caveat, Rhonda Shear was there. <laughs> she was the special guest, and Burt Reynolds, of course, was there. But
2: yeah, when was, when Rhonda yeah. Shear being at ringside is more exciting than 50% of your matches, you got a problem.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> that is. That's okay with me, though.
2: All right, let's turn it over to our judge, Scott Schiaffo for the ruling on the hot products round.
0: I hope I'm not becoming so predictable and obvious, but uh, I think I I could get behind the wrestling only because chances are the wave was changing as far as, like you had said, uh, in a generational kind of way, there's an ebb and flow to that industry. You call it an industry, might sound jaded, but I don't mean it by that. I mean, you know, it's entertainment like anything else, plus it's sports and entertainment. But they ebbed in a way that a lot of it might have been out of their hands. So as far as it really being a bad product, it might have been a case of timing. And I know a lot of those people were, you know, still not necessarily at the end of their game, per se. And I could get behind the magazine thing. It's pretty cool, pretty wacky, kind of zany. You know, it, it ended up creating a product that was something everybody was searching for, which is kind of cool in its own weird way. But the attack dogs, man, I can't go with that. <laughs> I can't. You know, that's got to go. It just has to go. It just has to go. It's just wrong on a lot of levels for me. You know, it's just me. I You know, I love animals. Uh, it's just so I'm not surprised it was Detroit, and I love you guys in Michigan, kind of, but a lot of wackiness in Michigan, a lot of great music, but a lot of wackiness, man. It's the water. That was advertised where? That
1: was in the Detroit Free Press, which (laughs) I picked that newspaper specifically because we used it a lot in the last episode I was in, and I thought that was funny.
2: (laughs) Fantastic! All right, Joe, will you pick up another point? You keep control of the board heading into our final one-point round. Wait, did Joe win that, or did WrestleMania
3: win that?
0: No, Joe won that. No. Oh, yeah, Joe, because yeah, this yeah, yeah. is the shittiest. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, you're right. we're going with shitty. <laughs> we're going with what lefty- I can't get
1: behind. This is the game I was born to play, baby. <laughs> yeah, it was. All right. Let's go ahead and go to the movies. It's gonna be good. Okay, so just like I had, uh, Norman Lear, you know, being synonymous with success at this time, I've got a movie with Elliot Gould and Diane Keaton and Paul Sorvino. Uh, Gould and Diane Keaton were like at their hottest at this point. Uh, but I give you the movie that came out on March 12th, 1976. I will, I will for now. And the description of the movie is as follows. The marriage of Les and Katie Bingham is in big trouble. They've already split up once, and now they're giving it one more try. But the bedroom of their New York apartment is not a happy place. Les finds her too cold. Katie finds him too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's actually in the tech. No. Um, This movie just got pounded uh, by the critics. Uh, Roger Ebert. I uh, gave the film one star and wrote, The film moves at a leaden pace, interrupted only by its dead halts and the actors standing around looking appalled at themselves after being forced to recite dialogue like, I still love that hard nosed little dumpling. Dumpling again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, There will be worse movies this year, but probably none so stupefying. Uh, Richard Eater of the New York Times said it's a stale 1950s pound cake of a movie that should make people happy that they don't make movies like that anymore. John Pym of the Monthly Film Bulletin wrote a relentless flow of innuendo, wisecracks, and an attempted tone of sexual sophistication. And Elliot Gould himself said that the movie was not fully realized, and he only did it so he could work with Diane Keaton. Who directed? Uh, Very good question. Norman Panama directed this movie, and as goes with all worst movies this was his final film as a
0: director <laughs> <laughs> was it his first and only No, don't tell me he- it
1: was not his he had a lot of films and he did not die or retire after this he just stopped directing movies
0: <laughs> okay wow
1: so i give you i will i will for now sounds like his career
0: magic <laughs> if i can't remember the title there's a problem <laughs> yeah. for movies of that era in 70s and 80s but
2: Okay, guys, for my movie's pick, this is the film where a conservative politician has to rush down to Florida to see one of his children to avoid political scandal. No, it's not The Birdcage. It's the movie where some nerdy college students go down to Fort Lauderdale on spring break and stay at a shady motel. No, it's not Revenge of the Nerds 2. (laughs) This is the movie that came out long before those good movies. My worst of is 1983's Spring Break. In lieu of actually building up story and plot in this film, we probably get one of the longest belly flop contest scenes put to film, including one from the top of a palm tree, mind you. We get a wet t-shirt contest, a his and hers wet t-shirt contest, And if that does not wet your whistle, just wait for the awkward scenes of four men sharing a bathroom at the same time and watching two other guys you just met get laid in the same room. A reviewer from the Philadelphia Daily News said, a seedy sex tease that's vulgar, but not funny. (laughs) The next time filmmaker Sean S. Cunningham, director of Friday the 13th and now Spring Break, decides to uncorset new more. On screen, I hope he closes the door behind him. Nice. Now, if you're wondering what the fuck I just said, I don't even know. I checked it five times. The print says, uncorset, new more.
0: Was that more. Is that an actor's name?
2: No, it's just a nonsensical word, because he couldn't write take a shit on, <laughs> in the newspaper. So it would normally read, the next time filmmaker Sean S. Cunningham, director of Friday the 13th, and now spring break, decides to take a shit on screen, I hope he closes the door behind him. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) And then Malcolm Johnson from the Hartford Current. he wrote, within the first 15 minutes or so, one begins to wish that Cunningham would see fit to let loose the same homicidal maniac that he let loose in Friday the 13th upon spring break. And who can't forget the words of the great Roger Ebert, who said... There's another thing seriously wrong with Spring Break. It doesn't know that the girls are people, too. Ah. And despite how horribly, awesomely bad the movie is, the real tragedy here is actress Tammy Lynn Leppert, who played a female boxer in the movie during one of the bar scenes. She disappeared shortly after the film's release and is yet to be found. She is believed to be the victim of a serial killer. You'll also recognize her from Scarface. In the very beginning of the chainsaw scene when Manny's in the car and he gets distracted by a girl, that's her.
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so released
2: just in time for spring break. I give you spring break, March 25th, 1983. A personal favorite of uh, Dueling Decades judge and contestant, Mr. Mike Ranger.
3: Is this the one with the cover the the guys chasing the girl?
2: This one on the cover, it's actually a shot of Tammy Lynn Leppert, the woman who went missing. Her torso and hips and the characters are miniaturized crawling up her thighs and planting a flag.
0: Did
2: I need you, to. Watch did
0: did you give us any more of the cast? Or did you give any other cast names?
2: I, I did not give any other cast names because you probably wouldn't recognize them it's other than the, uh, a few of the non speaking roles for some of the females who would go along go on to be play more playboy playmates. Oh, and Speaking of this movie happens to be the debut of Jeff Garland. Speaking of playboy playmates, you know, wow. (laughs) He's
3: a funny guy. Yes. Oh boy. Okay.
2: All right, man crush. What did you bring for the movies round?
3: All right. So let's go March 30th, 1994. This is a Wednesday. So they even gave this one a couple extra days in the box office. But uh, let me tell you, March of 94 absolutely wasn't terrible for movies. Was it a juggernaut? No, Uh, but it wasn't terrible. I would consider the month pretty average for movies. A few good sequels released this month, uh, but since the month itself was very average, like picking the worst of this month was more difficult than usual. I didn't want to go and pick a shitty kids movie here because honestly, I feel like all kids movies are shitty. (laughs) Uh, So instead I went with a movie I didn't remember at all. And when I did a little digging and I saw this movie had a $30 million budget, you'd figure I'd remember it, and I don't. Uh, and on the surface, this sounds like it would be a pretty good movie. As I mentioned before, it had a $30 million budget, so that's pretty damn good for a comedy. Uh, the movie was directed by the same guy who did Rain Man and Good Morning Vietnam, which is Barry Levinson. Oh. So again, that, that's good. Uh, you look at the cash, you had Christian Slater and Joe Pesci. That's good, too. Then you look at the box office numbers. Uh, again, this had a $30 million budget for this crime com- comedy by Barry Levinson, Joe Pesci, and Christian Slater. It brought in a whopping $3.8 million worldwide. That's not even $7 million in 2021. There were no special effects, there was nothing crazy in this movie. I watched it last night. Like, where did this $30 million budget go to? On blow yeah maybe i mean there there is a harrison ford cameo during the credits but i doubt that all went towards harrison ford (laughs) um and it certainly wasn't for marketing because i don't remember shit about this movie i don't remember seeing anything about this movie uh I, i looked at the cover it's vaguely familiar maybe i saw it just putting stuff together for our social media stuff but I don't know. And this is blasphemous. I I realize that. But for once, I actually agree with Siskel and Ebert on this one. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I do. They didn't like it. Uh, Pesci plays an unemployed actor named Jimmy Alto who never actually acts in anything. So throughout the entire movie, I'm just wondering how he has money to live, let alone like drive a car or let alone pay for his face. To be on the bench in Burbank Trying to get people to hire him I'm like where's this money come from This dude they say in the movie that he never had One role like where does this money Come from he had one job uh, During the movie as a waiter And he gets fired within like 20 minutes Spoiler
2: he's like the guy from the room
3: (laughs) Yeah like where the Fuck's this money come from and then Then you had Christian Slater who kind of plays Like his partner in crime who also doesn't Work and he clearly is not All there in the head um, I don't know, like, if you like movies that start out good, because I think this one did start out really good, and they could, if they went in the direction that they were going in the beginning before Barry Levinson just kind of ruined it by shoehorning a, like, G-rated vigilante story in the movie, it would have been good, but they didn't do that, they they changed directions, uh, but if you like all that, by all means, give this one a shot, it's Jimmy Hollywood is the name of this one.
0: Yeah, I, I know the film. I know this one. Oh, you've seen it? I know the film. <laughs> 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 it's one of the, know, honestly, it's one of those that's like on my watch list because I wondered how it got by me because that cast, I love Levison and that cast and that era and movies about actors and movies, I love. So how did that got by me? I don't know. So there's a lot of reasons why I, you know, you're
3: not, you would probably you, dig it. Cause there's a lot of like historical, like LA Hollywood yeah, acting stuff in it. Yeah. And if they kept the course on that, it would have been a good movie. Cause I was captivated the first, like 25 minutes I was into it. And then they start this secondary storyline where his car stereo gets stolen and they become like vigilantes called the SOS and it just kind of loses its luster. I was like, what, why did you do that? If you didn't do it, it would have been a good movie. Cause Joe Pesci actually is great in it.
0: Hey, listen, those actors are, you know, if it's a, if it's a, if the director makes some here look, now I'm going to save everything because I love movies and I love these people. And, uh, that's not what this is about. But I, I, I think probably if you have a couple of bad decisions in a weak script, you know, I don't know. That sounds like it should be a sleeper.
3: Yeah, that's when I saw the the cast. I was like, I gotta watch. It. I rented this last night. I don't own it, so again, once again, I spent three ninety <laughs> nine to rent a movie.
0: Where, uh, where did, like, you, a did you? How did you
3: rent it? Where? Um, this this one I did on VOD. I think I got it off of Prime. It was okay. three ninety nine on Prime. All right.
0: Well, I commend you for paying for your films. Cause I know that's not happening as much anymore with nah, of, dude, like I, you know what? I, I totally, I get that. And like 20
3: years ago, I think like anybody else, I was ripping movies and, and you know, just uh, within the past, like 20 years, it's all about buying movies and, and giving back. Cause that's what it's all about. Like if you just take everything, you're not going to get anything else.
0: You know, it's, I, I it's, a, it's, I'm a geek. I love technology. I'm not going to sit here and say, I haven't ripped. And I got it. you know, I walk a tightrope with this reality because I'm part of the business and I'm also a giant fan who like just loves to fill up his black hole with as many movies and, and records as I can at any, you know, and I don't have an endless budget for those things. And it's crazy once things become too easy, how hard it is to flip the switch back to getting into the mindset oh, sure. of. I'm supposed to be paying for this, but um, I don't want to take us off in a whole nother place. Cause you know, when it comes to movies and music and whatever, I just
3: no Say, say what's on your mind, man. That's you're the judge. You well, can it's hard.
0: I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I, I just, before we got on tonight, I saw a Instagram post by Doyle from the misfits who, you know, he takes a really hard stance against streaming and it's, We can't undo technology. You can't go back to the eighties and nineties when if somebody pirated something, there was a couple of levels of what they had to go through machinations to get that pirated copy. Now, everybody has the technology to have a perfect digital copy without paying for it. It's crazy. I don't know how we undo this. I don't think you can. There's gotta be a new way but um a lot of it's in the merchandising a lot of it's in the convention reality a lot of it's in different revenue streams but maybe it's all going to change with, have you
3: have you guys seen this nft thing that's going on now no, with like nft yeah. art yeah they i don't want to try to yeah yeah i don't want to try to explain it cuz i'll sound like an idiot cuz i don't know all about it but it's basically the, based on the same thing as, like, Bitcoin is.
2: Okay, yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like, it's using the same algorithms and stuff. It's very odd to me, though, that people are – like, somebody just bought a painting. A, it's a JPEG. Somebody bought a JPEG of uh, – I forgot the the guy's name, the artist. But it was $69 million somebody paid for it. But it's it's got, like, a digital signature on it, and it can't be, like, reproduced and all this that's going to come down the line where everything is on the same thing. I mean, it, that's a really
2: expensive desktop wallpaper right
0: there. <laughs> yeah, no shit. No shit. And it, well, how there's about different
3: that, websites. How about that, that Wu
0: Tang, the Wu Tang record that was like a one off digital that some maniac bought? Martin Screlly. Yeah, the douchebag.
1: Yeah, Martin Screlly, the guy who like made the AIDS medicine, like,
0: and then took it away or overpriced it or pound. whatever. And somehow the Wu Tang got caught up in that. But I, I, you know, this is a difficult subject, and this is a tough category round for me, because you know, because I, because I dig so many of the people involved in Joe's and Man Crush's choices. I can't nuke them. The fact that that poor woman went missing and is on the goddamn cover is horrible. So I got to go thumbs down on that one and gang agree with it. And it's not the movie's fault. It's got bad mojo or it's got some bad juju to it.
3: So, that is wild. I never heard that story
1: before.
0: Yeah, that's a terrible that
3: story, now. you know. I actually didn't realize that the guy that did
0: Spring Break did Friday the 13th. Yeah,
1: I didn't either. Yeah, I mean,
0: for, I mean <laughs> listen, you know, like people, they get something big under their belt. I kind of know a little, little bit about this. You get something in your resume that really shouts out success and uh, brand, and then you get offered to do something that you think is great on paper and all of a sudden is a big, stinky turd. It's not always easy to decipher that at the time. Have you ever been part of that? Is that what you're alluding
3: to? Was that you, <laughs> Scott?
0: Uh, thankfully, I never was in a place where I personally was in such demand that somebody threw a big amount of dollars at me to be involved in a project that really stunk on ice. I did stinkers for very little money. No, no independent film and independent music made it too easy for us to do things that were passion projects that still, excuse me, ended up with the same fate, whether there was a, a lot of money involved or whether there wasn't so i don't want to poop on anybody's parade if that's making excuse me making any sense no i i get it yeah
3: i i think that's a good point though that you made like the movie that i selected jimmy hollywood if they got actors that were you know synonymous in the independent scene i think that movie would have done really well like to spend 30 million dollars on a movie obviously that had to go towards joe pesci right. and christian slater that 30 million uh, bucks. And you said they Ford,
0: Harrison Ford as a cameo.
3: Yeah. It's a cameo. It's during the credits. So like, <laughs> even if you stuck around that long to see that cameo and it's, it's Levinson. Like, yeah. It's kind of wasted. Like, I just think that they yeah. could have done this so much cheaper and maybe marketed it a little bit better. A little change of story around a little bit. it would have been great if they stuck with the way it was for the first 25 minutes before it got weird.
0: Yeah, I don't know, man. He's got such an awesome career overall.
3: Yeah, who am I to question?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know that. I mean, talk about Levison um, Diner. He's just got a string of really.
1: Who knows what lot.
0: happened with that? You know, I mean, uh, the, the, the early nineties, early to mid nineties. I think there were a lot of movies about making movies, and they didn't all connect. A lot of them oh, did it. Yeah. There's a movie called Mistress. I might've been ranting about this last time. I don't know, but it's a movie from that era that almost nobody has seen, but it's a movie about making movies with De Niro and Robert Wool and a handful of other really great people. Um, And uh, it's, it's very little seen, but if you see it, there's no way you don't like it if you're part of that world, you know. But that said, I think a lot of films were films about films and a lot of people that go to the movies want to be entertained or they want to be titillated and they're not in the business. So it's not like they're right. gonna. there's not going to be giant box office. That's going to be a niche thing. And if the movie sucks, then it's really a niche thing. You know? So I don't know.
3: This could have went straight to video
0: and done it. Right.
2: Yeah. And to bring it all full circle. Uh-huh. One of the reviews I saw about the movie I selected spring break said it's only real purpose has an ulterior motive, and that's just to get people to sit in the theater and consume soda, which will in turn rot their teeth.
0: So. Wow. <laughs> oh, it hell. is 1983. Right. Yeah, it's all about the concession stand.
2: All right, duelers. So I pick up a point in that round, but unfortunately I am still trailing Joe as we head into our first two-point round, and that's going to be the news round. So we'll summarize an article by Stephen A. Marquez of the St. Petersburg Times, March 16th, 1983, where the headline reads, Go easy on him, says victim. No, says judge. Having served prison time himself, Paul Lydon could sympathize with Joseph Dupree. So Leiden asked the judge Tuesday to go easy on Dupree, even though Dupree helped push Leiden out of a second floor balcony, cracking his skull. Now that I'm back to normal, I would ask the judge to be lenient on him, Lydon told the judge right after the jury took a mere 30 minutes to convict Dupree. Then the judge imposed the maximum 15-year sentence, calling the crime one of the most senseless ever to come before him. The defense and prosecuting attorneys both agreed the crime was senseless, and both asked the jury to send Dupree to jail. Where they differed, though, was on the charge with the state arguing that this was beyond negligence and it was intentional. And that stupidity, it's not a defense. And dumbness, that's not a defense either. So you're probably asking, well, what the hell happened? Well, during a party at a second floor apartment, Lydon said he passed out on a living room couch. A third dude named Harris, who earlier pleaded guilty and received only a five-year prison sentence for his part in all of this, well, he was at a party with Dupree when Harris said, I don't like that motherfucker. And then another party goer said, well, if you don't like him, throw him off the balcony. So Harris grabbed the unconscious Lydon's legs and Dupree grabbed his arms. They carried him up to the balcony and pushed him over the railing. Then they turned to each other, smiled and walked back into the party. Lydon testified that he remembers nothing about the incident, the party, and he doesn't know either of his assailants. And he said he was kind of angry because Dupree, he got a tougher sentence than Harris. You know, I thought in the end, he said, I just thought the guy got a raw deal. I just got out of prison myself two days before that happened on a marijuana charge. So the guy gets out of prison two days later, goes to a party, gets thrown off a balcony, gets his skull cracked.
0: That's why you don't drink Cisco. (laughs) <laughs> oh man i don't even know where to go with that one <laughs> so the dude right. that got his head cracked open had just gotten out of jail yep and we don't really know why he talked to. i guess leniency because he could see the plight of jail and he wasn't that badly hurt right yeah. you know he
2: only got his skull cracked open you know
0: yeah, and unfortunately, it's not <laughs> the victim. The victim. It's not really the victim's place to prescribe the penance. True. That's the judicial system, which is we know, is top notch. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course.
2: All right, Joe Finley. Let's turn it over to you. What do you have for the news round?
1: Hey, we all know that bad news is my specialty, and I am going to. Bring it this week. Sit around. Sit down, my friends. Uh Let's talk about Karen Ann Quinlan. Uh, she was a 21-year-old who went into a persistent vegetative state after she stopped breathing for 15 minutes two times after mixing alcohol with tranquilizers. Uh So she's in this coma. Her father wants to take her off her ventilator. He, de- uh, he doesn't want her being kept alive By any artificial means, the hospital refuses to do it because the police threaten to arrest them for murder. If they do that, Uh, he is not the legal guardian. The courts appointed a guardian because she was uh, not a minor. So the courts appointed a separate guardian. So he hired a theological lawyer to sue to become the legal guardian of his own daughter and lost He had to sue again, he lost again, he appealed, he went to the state Supreme Court, and finally won the right in uh, the New Jersey state Supreme Court to shut off this uh, girl's ventilator. So, uh, it was actually a pioneering case in the uh, Right to Die uh, forum of justice uh but after all that time it was quite some time uh going through lawsuits and his uh, family her family was finally going to have some closure and peace until they take her off the ventilator and she doesn't die (laughs) yeah i remember i I remember she lived for another 11 years in a persistent persistent vegetative state uh they did not want to go through everything again uh with removing her feeding tube, which would have been the final straw uh she eventually died on her own, oh sorry, nine years after not eleven uh she died of pneumonia uh in that uh in that coma so the uh just the unfortunate thing, obviously the whole thing is sad and unfortunate, but the idea to go through all of that to let your daughter go in peace. And then she does not go in peace. She stays for almost another decade. That appeal case was March thirty first, nineteen seventy six, and that was just a really, really sad situation.
0: That really, I remember that. I I remember it pretty well, actually. It's horrible. It was a uh, bicentennial year. I, you guys, well, I'm so much older than you guys. I'm old as shit. <laughs> i'm old as as dirt i'm old as dirt i was an adult for all of these things
3: (laughs) i'm glad somebody remembers
2: all right man crush let's hear what you have for the worst of news round
3: all right well i'm not going to bring any violence or any sadness like joe i'm going to go with other news it's just not good uh march 22nd 1994 and i honestly i forgot all about this and this was the talk of the town In 1994, Scott, you being in New Jersey, I'm sure you knew all about this. Uh, Back in the 90s, everyone knew who Howard Stern was. And if if you were by a radio in the morning, chances were you were listening to Howard Stern. I had a friend of mine whose brother was a cop in our local police department. And I remember him telling us that if you were going to commit a crime to do it for the four hours that uh, Howard was broadcasting on K-Rock. Because uh, for those four hours, the cops in our city, they were parked. They had, like, a map of where service of K-Rock came in. And the cops would park there for all four hours so they can listen to the entire show. That's not my news story. That's just a tidbit on this is how deep it was back (laughs) then with people listening to Howard every morning, like, religiously. Uh, But here's a story. Uh, This is out of the Daily News, and it's titled, uh, Stern's Burning to Be Gov. Radio bad boy Howard Stern instantly became the best-known challenger to Mario Cuomo, of course, is the, uh, the father of notorious douchebag Andrew Cuomo, uh, when he announced plans on Tuesday to run for governor. Stern's platform is as follows. Pass the death penalty, get road crews to work only at night, and stagger highway tolls to prevent traffic jams. Once all three of these goals are achieved, Stern promised he will resign and turn New York over to the as yet unnamed lieutenant governor. Uh, He said, and I quote, I am going to win. Stern told the roughly three million listeners of his nationally syndicated show. I'm going to be the next governor of New York. That's a quote. At the very least, his name recognition is miles ahead of the current crop of GOP challengers, Richard Rosenbaum, George Pataki and Bill Green. Stern hopes to run on the Libertarian ticket, and he said, uh, wait until the inauguration. It'll be wild. That's a quote from him. And FYI, (laughs) uh, there was a Daily News call-in poll a week after he announced, and Stern's support on that poll, 10 to 1 in support of Howard Stern. Uh, Stern would go on to win the Libertarian Party's nomination on April 23rd, uh, 1994. It took like two thirds of all those votes. However, once Stern refused to file any of the financial disclosures which are required by the law, he ended up dropping out of the race in August 4th, 1994. Howard would go on to file a lawsuit against the state of New York, and he argued that the financial disclosures violated his right to privacy and freedom of association. Sounds familiar, huh?
0: Oh man, that's that's us fucking making me nuts here. I'm seething at this. Uh, When
3: that when that suit was (laughs) denied, he withdrew from the race, and George Pataki dethroned Mario Cuomo. uh, And that was uh, it. Would have been Cuomo's fourth run at governor.
2: Just think of what would have been with Howard Stern as governor.
3: Well, he only wanted three things, and I think. It all stemmed cause he was pissed from sitting in traffic. So that's how it like started.
2: Yeah, but those three things would have taken a long time to accomplish.
3: Yeah, I mean he would have been in there for like <laughs> ten days. To- nah, he would have quit. He would not have stayed. There's no way that he would have been able to do that radio show and been the governor. No. You wouldn't know. I it
1: wouldn't have worked. I don't know. Jesse Ventura was late for work all the time.
0: <laughs> He's the uh the king of all media for a reason and There was truly mania for him during those years, late eighties, early nineties. He was, he was like the Elvis of radio, but for the whole shock thing, there's good and bad to it. Cause if you remember the movie, the Fisher King. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah, Yeah. There's a shock jock in that, that talks about something pretty heinous. And then somebody who doesn't have all their marbles follows through with it. And it's a horrible story and heartbreaking. And some say that was sort of based on or pitted at Stern. But, um, and I, you know, I, I dig Howard. I was never a, you know, I was never a hardcore Howard guy, but I dug a lot of what he did. And I, I didn't stay that connected to it in those years because probably I didn't really get my political antenna up until I became an old salty man. Kind of keep my eye a little bit and now you can't help it because politics is the new championship wrestling. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, brother. Yeah, it's like pick a side or you know, whatever. And I'm not taking There's like it either, factions. Anyway. Yeah, I, I don't take it at all. Yeah. But it's pretty ironic that Stern I'm forgetting completely that Stern was in the same pickle that 45 ended up in, which is show your taxes or shut your mouth and and he just bailed he said fuck it well you know uh, you know stern bailed <laughs> but what happened to the other boy is still i don't know uh, it's just uh, a hot 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 button topic man um watch the space <laughs> i uh now we're going for
3: whatever you feel like is the worst whatever whatever one tickles you the worst or you could just pick mine.
2: <laughs> I just don't want to hear Man Crush ever talk about a bad tickle again. <laughs>
0: Speaking of Cuomo.
1: <laughs> it's hard, man. It's
0: really hard. That's what she said. I mean, yeah. I served that <laughs> one up to you on a plate. There's so much. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a hypersensitive dude, and it's, sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not so good, but the things that are behind, even the story. Yeah. On the surface, it looks like idiots got drunk and threw a guy out the window who was also an idiot and they all get what they deserve. But there's, (laughs) there's a lot more to that because addiction is a miserable, horrible thing that makes people do ridiculous, horrible things. And uh, it's hard to get on a soapbox with that for me because I was one of those people. And I thank God I never, hurt anybody directly other than myself, but that happens with addiction and blackout drinking. So that's a terrible story, but I don't know where to go with that. And the Quinlan thing's another, almost, there's shades of that in there. That's just a heartbreaking story all around, but I don't know. The thing with Stern is I'm going to go with that because, yeah. uh,
3: still in the game.
0: I just, um, <laughs> Everybody got away a little... I mean, everybody's unscathed from that story. The other two stories, there's a lot of hurt people. And a lot of people were suffering in ways they might not even know they're suffering.
3: Yeah, I mean, people probably would have suffered if Howard Stern was the governor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: but, <laughs> but <no, laughs> funny, I'm thinking about the outcome more than anything else. <laughs> I mean, the people in the, in Mark and Joe's stories, there's a humanity thing there that it's... I don't know, it's, it's horrible, but... Uh, some of that had to come out with, with the Stern thing. I think obviously nobody learned a lesson from Stern. Nope.
3: It's not it's never going to stop. I mean, you. I just saw on the news yesterday, Meghan Markle's thinking of running for the <laughs> Democratic ticket. Like what? Like it's never going to end. It's never going to end. It's People have too not much power one. now with social media and everything else. You could be an absolute nobody and you have an audience in front of you. Well, you know
0: that you bring up a really good point that I don't think anybody's really talking about in this way, but our political system, the country is an experiment and it seemed to be going well for quite a while, but I think we took a fucking terrifying turn and I don't know how we get the ship right again, to be honest with you. I'm just an actor musician and, you know, I, I always used to say, I hope that Better minds than mine will prevail. That's just, who the fuck? I don't have any idea now. I I do. I think Stern should run again.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, duelers. Well, you know what? Just like a good porno, man crush comes from behind, and he ties up this game with Joe heading into the final music round.
3: Woo! This is going to be hard for me. I, did you say I come from on Joe from
1: behind? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Jesus. There's only one reason I do this show.
0: Oh, man. All right. Money uh, shot. All right.
3: all right. So let's go. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to defer. I won that round. I'm going to defer. Joe, you get to start off the music round.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to take you to March 9th, 1976, and I'm going to take you to the first day of the north american tour of the who at the boston garden keith moon passes out two songs in and the show gets canceled wow. I'm not, it's, it's not done from there, but that's the very first day of their North American tour As he passes out. They cancel. they postpone the, the show. Uh, he passed out over his drum kit and, uh, they had to reschedule and they pulled him out, uh, in a previous time when he passed out on his drum kit, because this is not a first, but in a previous time he had, they literally just called somebody up. They're like, does anybody know how to play the drums and know our songs? <laughs> and as somebody from the audience came up and finished the show. Yeah. There are some big shoes to fill.
0: Now, did they, did they, did they, they did reschedule the show and make good on the show?
1: They did reschedule this show, yeah. And um, the next day, uh, so he's up and at him again. He just tries to. He, he tries to destroy his entire hotel room. He had cuts himself so bad. He passed out and he was bleeding out in his hotel room was found by uh Bill Kerbishley. Their manager took him to the hospital and yelled him. He's like, I'm going to get the doctor to get you nice and fit. So, uh, so you're back within two days because I want to break your fucking jaw. You fucked this band around so many times and I'm not having it anymore. Uh The doctors said that he, uh, he had not gotten there in time and intervened moon would have definitely bled to death. Uh, they suggested that, uh, Daltrey and, uh, Roger Daltrey and Pete Enwistle had uh, discussed firing him at this point. Uh, they didn't believe he was gonna be able to make it through the remainder of the tour. He did, but he was up right afterwards. He was hospitalized again. Uh, that was on August 8th, so we're a little beyond now. Uh, but he had just gone in for, uh, exhaustion and they were concerned now that he wasn't going to make it to the Canadian leg of the tour. Uh, they finished the, that tour up, uh, October 21st in Toronto. Uh, but he never played again. That was his final tour. They, uh, he played for the band recording, but he was so drunk and he had gained so much weight and they refused to tour. Uh, and unless he quit drinking, which he didn't, he ended up dying, uh, September of that uh, year. Not
0: of 76. Uh, the month,
1: the... No, not of 76. This is the following year when they've released that album, when they, when they didn't tour again. Uh, but either way, uh, just going back to March 9th there, which is kind of the whole thing is the very first day of the tour is the beginning of the end for Keith Moon and the who.
3: September seventh, uh, nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, is when he died.
1: Oh, okay. So there was a gap period between the records. But when,
0: when he seventy eight, when he died. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, that's tough. Okay, let's let's hear them out because,
3: and that's tough. why they probably didn't use him in that new Bill and Ted's movie because, like, when they picked the drummer for that movie, I was like, oh, it's gonna be Keith Moon or, and I right. think we talked about this yeah. with somebody like months ago. And these are the reasons why they didn't use him for that movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: All right. So I'll get my pick out of the way here because, you know, largely I'm out of this game.
3: That's not true. If you win this round, you win the
2: game. You got one point. Oh Yeah, I guess that's true.
1: (laughs) He's not coming into this with the confidence, Scott. Just ignore him.
2: (laughs) Not so much. Not so much. All right, guys. We'll hop the pond over to the Guardian, London, England for an album unfortunately released on March 4th, 1983, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Dazzle Ships, in which a well-known electronics band tried to break away from the formula that has made them successful. Gallantly attempt new and experimental things, and it ends up in a horrible mess. OMD are best known for exquisite electronic ballads like Joan of Arc, Uh, But they have now left the pretty tinkling to their misery-side colleagues, as much of the uh, new album tackles a bleak new world of robotics and genetic engineering. Much of the album consists of long, overdubbed bursts of radio signals and noises, and they're not used with subtlety, but merely stuck in there for an alienating effect. So there's a call from Radio Prague, electronic beeps and a squeal, and even a montage of time checks. And against this, there are robot-like songs like the ABC Auto Industry or Genetic Engineering. So I give you OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, with their fourth album, Dazzle Ships, released March 4th, 1983. Don't bother checking it out.
3: (laughs) I don't know. You know what I it makes me think I just finished the uh, the BC Boys book finally. Oh, yeah. Uh which is it's a great book. It's huge. It, it like I of course I don't read. Uh it's audio, so it's like 14 hours long. But there's a lot of chapters where they're talking about like all these weird noises and stuff that they put in music. That is amazing now going back and listening to these songs and knowing how they did it. Like Adam Yauk was just amazing with some of the stuff that he came up
2: with. Oh yeah, and Zappa was famous for doing stuff like that. He would use unconventional items to create music from. But orchestral maneuvers in the dark, doing it? Uh eh, no thanks. <laughs> Who
3: wrote the Beastie's book? It was done by well, it's just the two of them. I mean, Adam Yauch, right. of course he he was they, passed they away. They did it beforehand. together.
0: It's not a it's autobio, It's not a bio. Yeah, it's. I know it's they have the, the two of them. They have the film with Spike Jones, their documentary. Yeah, which the I film was based save. on the book. Okay, yeah, so cool. it,
3: if you like the film, which is only like two hours long, this is the rest of it. Like, this is all the meat and potatoes that they didn't put into that. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of chap. The only thing I didn't like about it, and I know we're getting off track, but whatever, people like this. Some of the chapters, there are, every chapter is pretty much read by somebody else whether it's an actor or another musician, a lot of people from the New York area, uh, some, I, I couldn't get into it because of their voice and how they read it, but I could, I, I the could. Content, understand it. the content's really good though. Like, so if you're a huge BC boys fan, go back and listen to it and then listen to the albums again. And you'll just have this background of these songs and how they did it. And it, just makes it 10 times better. So when you were reading about that band, that's what I was thinking about, like all these crazy ways that they were sampling music and just making music the bizarrest fashions that you would ever think about. So sometimes it works out in your case. It did
2: not so much. Not so much. (laughs) All right, man crush. It's over to you to wrap up this game. What is your pick for the music round?
3: All right, this is for all the marbles. Whoever takes this round takes a game. Let's go to March 22nd, 1994. And this music selection right here is mind-blowing. Let me tell you that. Four years earlier, from 1994, 1990, this artist released his debut album, and people were talking about this guy like he was the next coming of Elvis. I actually heard that quite a bit. Like, Not that the music styling was the same, but he was taking over the scene. He was a new Elvis. There was hype on top of hype for this guy. His debut spent 16 weeks on top of the Billboard 200. 16 weeks. Wow. And at at the time, it was the fastest selling hip hop album of all time. I think that number was something like 6 million album sales in three and a half months. When it was all said and done, that album went seven times platinum in the U.S., sold over 15 million copies worldwide, and... It was number 20 on the U.S. Billboard 200 for the entire decade of the 90s from 90 to 99. So I'm not exactly sure when it was, but I had that particular album that I just talked about on another episode a while back. I don't know if it was last year or whatever, if you want to go back after I'm done. So from obscurity at the beginning of 1990 to a household name by 1991, everyone was clamoring for this dude. Within six months of that album's release in 1990, his label They rushed out a live album. He dated Madonna. He had his own doll. He had Nike deals, Coke deals. He got a principal cameo and song in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. I I know who we're talking about now. Yeah. Then then he got his own movie by the end of 1991. And I think his debut album was released in like September of 1990. And his debut movie came out in October of 1991. So all that shit that I just said, all that occurred in a 13 to 14 month span. So we're talking about exposure out the ass. This guy was everywhere. So then he tours for like two plus years, Asia, Europe, Russia, South America, basically anywhere, but the United States. Then on March 22nd, 1994, Vanilla Ice stepped back into the spotlight and released spa- <laughs> the smash hit follow-up album. Mind-blowing. And uh, that's kind of the truth. He did, he really did step back into anything, uh, but he did release an album. That album would go on to sell less than 50,000 copies. Wow. The album so, did so terribly that his label at the time, SPK Records, would drop him entirely this dude like he came back just picture everybody pictures vanilla ice the big hair dancing this dude came back with dreadlocks and he was like doing diss tracks and like rapping about weed
2: i remember this
3: yeah he he
0: basically was trying to go gangster yeah yeah it was just it was just odd
2: the video was nuts man it was like him like blowing hits into the camera and... yeah,
3: yeah yeah it was yeah. <laughs> there was two videos from that one and we'll, we'll get to that but i mean i if you listen to it it's pretty it's not bad it's pretty run of the mill 90s hip hop and that being said i watched the grammys last night with my wife and kid that album would fit right in right now <laughs> with what people are listening to re-release time <laughs> Seriously, if Ace of Bass was releasing an album right now, they would be killing it at the Grammys. Because half the stuff that I listened to last night, I was like, this is like, I feel like I'm listening to middle of the road 90s stuff. And these are all like huge hits. <laughs> but if you're in the mood for like diss tracks about like Mark Wahlberg and lots of lyrics about weed, go and check out Mind Blowing by Vanilla Ice. And I think the you were talking about, uh, was it the "Roll 'Em Up
2: video? Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah. That was one of the singles from that.
2: Yeah, I, I remember specifically, now that you bring it up, man, I used to sit and watch The Box and wait for yes. that video all the time.
3: It's bizarre. <laughs> it's bizarro land. He didn't even really dance in those videos either. He's just kind of like hanging out with a bunch of people. Yeah,
2: he's just kind of just like leaning and, you know, doing <laughs> trying to do like the gangster lean. But yeah, it's bad. man.
0: <laughs> the backlash on him was severe. I mean, I lived through all that. I was an adult. My band was almost signed to SBK at that time. So I'm all aware of SBK records and the other artists on it. He was a novelty. Yeah. I mean, at best, originally, he seemed like something really cool and they used the queen, uh, you know, to use the queen sample was cool, kind of, but it went downhill fast and he just kind of looked almost, um, I don't want to say silly, but it was, he just wasn't plausible. And then when they try to rifle him back as a gangster, it didn't work out well for him, but he went on and he, the guy, you know, I know some of his story and he soldiered on and he reinvented himself sure. more than once. So yep. I give him props
3: for that. Since you know about SPK though, because I heard rumors that, cause it was a supposedly it was like an autobiography that came out about his life this is like probably like ninety one, ninety two. They put it out and they were, they put all this bullshit that we knew in high school. They're like, oh, he grew up in like Miami and went to all the worst schools and drive by shootings. And they supposedly it was SPK that put together that biography that was all bullshit. And then he like came back and was like, none of that's true. And that's kind of where the disconnect with, I don't know. This is what growing up. This is kind of what I remember. And it was like kind of a disconnect between his uh, his listeners and the record company. And that kind of, you know, got him kicked off SPK. Of course, that album helped. But did you ever hear anything about that?
0: That's interesting because I the way I remember it, I was thinking that he, can, you know, it, it it dropped and it was a novelty. Let's you know, it's a novelty. This wasn't. You know, there's some really great hip hop already by that year, Um, no matter what skin color you were. You know, uh, I say that now because back then there was a, talk about disconnect, there was a line in the sand too about what color your skin was and if you were allowed to rap. And then we're talking about the beasties and the doors they blew open and then they reinvent themselves. But he came off like a novelty act, and I thought he was discredited in a lot of ways for similar reasons. I don't know if he grew up in poverty, and I don't know how true any of that was. But um, I do know that he reinvented himself a number of times since then. And anybody who stays in the entertainment business for many decades and can carve a living out of it on some level earns my respect, definitely. Yeah. Um, even though I might not have him, you know, he might not be one of my favorite artists per se. Um, with this category now and the people that were mentioned, I'll probably have to go with Mark.
2: Whoa, I counted myself out on this one. Jeez. <laughs> no. Well, wow.
0: <laughs> if we're going, see, it's hard for me to go with bad What's bad and why it's bad. (laughs) I mean, I grew up with the who. And there's a lot of lot to what happened with Moon. And it's a very sensitive area for me, as well as if you're a true fan of the band and of Moon and you understand what happened with him. And the Swan Song album with Moon is one of the who's best albums. And their whole time with him is probably their best work, not unlike Mick Taylor with the Stones. So I don't discount anything because of addiction, no matter how horrible it was. I mean, the guy ran over his own chauffeur.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You
0: know? I mean, and it's horrible, but it's sad. It's horrifically sad. And addiction sucks. And the people that suffer from it they a lot of people go down with them, but it's it's hard to it's hard to find a place where you could saddle them with responsibility long enough to get their shit right so nobody else gets hurt. So I can't count that one out. You know, I can't count that one. And Manel Ice, he's certainly not one of my favorite people, but I respect a lot of what he's done over the years just to reinvent himself. Reality TV helped him reinvent himself. So good for him. He was like flipping houses and shit. Right. Yeah. OMB <laughs> musically, uh-huh. come on, man they they blew the they blew us away, with uh,
2: no no no. I think they just blew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. If you leave is a great song, man. Come on, that ruled the the charts and that ruled the theater with Pretty in Pink. Yeah. You know, that Pretty in Pink record was blasting out everybody's car in those years, mine included. And I loved everything. I loved 60s music, 70s music, 80s stuff, 90s grunge. I cut off in the 2000s because I just I'm old now and I don't know what the fuck's up anymore. But um, (laughs) like I watched the Grammys and, you know, my gal pal, who's a phenomenal Singer songwriter in their own right, we were just lost, man.
3: You know, that's you know just what was really good though. Did you like that band, The Black Pumas?
0: I dug them. I, they got that, my, that,
3: that, that. They were really good. I was all about that. But the a lot three of the females other
0: females got my respect. Is hey, I,
3: I missed the the very beginning, so I might have missed them.
0: You know, they they played their own instruments and then they switched off, and I thought that was cool. But, you know, I'm just lost with where it's at now. But um, OMD took a stab at trying to all these people, with the exception of the who, the who were sitting on a problem that at that time nobody knew much about or there was a lot of ignorance surrounding alcoholism and drug addiction in the 70s. And people were starting to pay a terrible price for substance abuse by the end of the 70s. And it wasn't a joke anymore. Um that's a sad story, but OMD and Vanilla Ice, some of their biggest crimes is just as artists trying to take a different trying to take a different approach to their art and it going over like a lead balloon, which happens. And then again, some people get to come back from that. I don't think yep. OMD really did. Although now they're probably, you know, things come back over time. And I have a fond spot for their records that were you know, big hits at and during their big hit heyday. I don't hold the tanker against them. It's Vanilla Ice, I don't hold it against them. And he was one of the first people to, not one of the first, but he seemed to be like one of the first to capitalize on sampling and not really have cred as an artist. And, you know, dollar signs everywhere, like MC Hammer. And then like a year or two later, vanish.
3: You know, that's funny because... If we would have went to a tiebreaker, my tiebreaker also from 1994, Mark, this is one of your favorite songs of all time. It was uh, MC Hammer's album "The Funky Headhunter" oh. with the song <laughs> "Pumps and a Bump."
2: Pumps and a bump. <laughs> I like the girls with the pumps and a bump. Oh, great track!
3: Which is also was a flop, but not as bad a flop as the Vanilla Ice one. Well,
2: I think yeah. the lesson to be learned here oh. with Vanilla Ice and OMD is if you're going to sample things queen good to sample call sign from radio prague not so much
1: <laughs> sometimes it uh, works though but if you ask vanilla ice he if you ask vanilla ice he <laughs> didn't sample queen he's like i saw the interview he goes no cuz theirs is dun 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 and mine is dun dun
0: dun 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 dun
1: dun like he just added like an extra note i remember I- that there's
0: no way that. there's like there's no way to for him to that was not going to hold any water that whole thing i no. mean it's no absolutely it's john not. deacon it's you know it's john deacon <laughs> yeah and you know it was kind of cool and <laughs> that track grooved. You gotta be full of shit. If you say you didn't kind of dig it. But oh, dude, he yeah, got played uh-huh. the shit got overplayed. And he did start coming off as really just a novelty and shallow. And then we don't know if the reinvention was sincere. I don't know if he grew up in poverty. I don't know how much of that's supposed to matter. I love we all in my era, love Bob Dylan, but he made up a lot of his own mythology. Right. And when he got found out, nobody went after him with a fucking meat cleaver. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then he That's had good. his down years. Can you imagine
3: if some of those guys were in this time era, like this decade? <laughs> how badly or like would their careers have even went on? Like, you know, once those stories come out and you hit social media, you're done. Can you imagine some of those? We yeah. might not have ever gotten a second album or anything else. I don't
2: know, man. Keith Moon probably could have made some really great TikTok videos.
3: <laughs> 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 hey, hey, Scott, anything you want to plug before you,
0: you go? Oh, boy. Well, I thank you for that opportunity and let me think this through. Um, there's no conventions coming up for me just yet. Certainly no in-person con- uh, conventions. My buddy's... Uh, Marilyn Gigliotti and Brian O'Halloran just got back from Florida yesterday to the first in-person convention that they had done in a while. I'm curious to see how that went. But, um, you know, other than uh, finding me on the web, scottchiaffo.com, Scotchiapple, and any of the social medias, come hang out, interact with me. A lot of the films I've worked on over last year and all throughout my career, they're all available on all different platforms. Thank you all for patronizing when you do and the book as well thank you for patronizing that and i just feel like i'm extremely blessed to have the grassroots career i have and the people in my life that i do have so thank you all for that And you guys are really hilarious i really enjoy being on this show it's a great time you have some of the coolest guests a lot of the cats i know or i've been in conventions with so i enjoy following you on social media you know, guys, follow me back when you can, and uh, thanks for having me on tonight. Thanks a lot, Scott. When stuff opens back up, hopefully we can hang out sometime. Yeah, hopefully sure. we're going to be at a con together somewhere down the road. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully they're they're opening back up.
3: <laughs> but thanks again, brother. I love it.
0: You got it. Okay, so I'm going to be out. All right, all
3: right. Because <laughs> I'm losing my voice. All right. Thanks again, man. Thanks a lot, all right, Scott. You have a good night.
2: You too, Later, buddy. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But if you've missed an episode, don't worry. You can always head back over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. While you're on those interwebs, also float over and subscribe to Mr. Joe Finley's show, Miscast Commentary.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, guys. We've got a lot of fun movies coming up. We just did a uh, marathon of different recordings. We got some really good 90s, and then we're hitting back with a bunch of awesome 80s hits. So, uh, yeah, come check us out there. Awesome.
2: While you're on the interwebs, uh, you can also go over to facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, where you can join our private group, and over there you can share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone.
0: Podcast New York. York. Be heard.